Hello and welcome to the Andyplex. This is episode five. We're gonna need a bigger Jaws podcast. We will be diving deep into the 1975 classic Jaws, as well as hearing a journey of someone in showbiz, fellow writer on the showbiz storm, friend of mine, collaborator, writer, director, Mr. Nick Chandler, who I've got on the uh, got on the Zoom app right now. Zoom, our favorite app right now in this quarantine. Is it the official quarantine app? Probably. I think everyone's using it a lot. Anyway, thank you, Zoom, for being a thing. Uh, all right, here we go. Mr. Nick Chandler, hello, you there? Hello. Hello, Andy. Can you hear me all right? Am I coming through? You are coming through loud and clear, sir. Your beautiful Fantastic. voice is crystal clear. <laughs> oh, shucks. Well, thank you for uh, beaming into my living room here on a, uh, this Thursday morning here in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah. Glad, glad to vir- virtually be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, um, really pumped to have you on the show. Again, you're one of those folks that I knew um, it would just be a matter of time before I got you on. Obviously, <laughs> wanted to do it in person, but uh, this is actually working out really well, and i um, just glad to conti- be continuing doing the show. And here we are. Beautiful day here in L.A. Good day to sit inside and watch movies. <laughs> exactly. And that, I mean, that helps keep... Keep us sane, I think, um, seeing some cinema. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, talk to you and also to take a deep dive into this staggering piece of, of cinema, Jaws, which is in its 45th year already. It's hard to believe. Yeah, exactly. I know. And it's still as biting and powerful as ever. And really excited to to dive deep into that today. I'm going to keep saying deep dive because it particularly applies to movies about water. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so pumped to have you, Nick. I, I know some of your journey, but you're kind of a mythical figure and uh, you have many, many layers. You're an onion. We're all onions, but you're a, <laughs> you're a particularly large onion. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of peel away a little bit at uh, Nick Chandler today. I For met sure. you um, a couple, couple years ago uh, through Ryan Grassmeyer, who's actually on episode two. Judgment Days, mm-hmm. where we discussed Terminator 2. I met you, I think, at his birthday party a couple of years ago, maybe a couple of Aprils Sounds ago. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. We saw uh, Ready Player One, another Spielberg, actually. Oh, for sure. Just made that connection. And uh, yeah, we were, we were fast friends, and you quickly invited me along to uh, be part of this really exciting project, which I actually let you intro. I think you sure. know what I mean. <laughs> I do, indeed. Yes, it's been uh, a great couple of years getting to know you. And, uh, you know, I, th- I really just have the utmost respect for people who sort of take fandom to the, um, um, the extreme or really to an, an elevated level where, um, you know, I think what happens in any sort of art form and especially in cinema is that, you know, we, we get our education from being exposed to it and the, the people who are just so enamored with it end up getting to carry the torch. And that's definitely, I think, um, the category you fall in is that you're just such a big fan that I think, you know, you'll end up, um, when these writers have sort of s- said their stories, you'll, you'll carry the torch on forward. So, um, well, thank you. Sir. Yeah, there's, there's, Very kind there's of you. definitely two, two or three different types of fandom. And, um, uh, yeah, and it's, it's really great seeing, seeing it blossom in you and, you know, taking all the, all these cues from, cinema and turning them into your own sort of st- language so well thank you so much sir i right back at you man that was really well said yeah i uh, i'm really honored and stoked to be part of this really incredible 
fun project that uh, you and, and, and Ryan have been cooking up for a while now. I know you guys have been writing it for years. It's called Last Best Hope. It's uh, You guys are using the podcast medium, which is really, really cool. So it has this old-timey kind of radio show. It's a sci-fi takes place on a, on a ship, so it's kind of Star Trek, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, kind of has that golden age of sci-fi vibe. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun doing it. We sort of fell uh, into it. There was a lot of Venn diagrams, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm very happy with, with the, you know, sort of the beast that it's become. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a serial comedy uh, sci-fi radio play podcast thing, and... Um, you know, we, Ryan and I had written some scripts and, uh, you know, we're in meetings and we had gotten some representation and we're doing all the sort of Hollywood things. And um, it sort of occurred to us after taking some meeting, we had um, one meeting in particular with this big production company and they, they were struggling to sort of understand what it was and they were trying to tell us what they wanted and for us to reverse engineer. And that can be frustrating, I think, you know, in this town. Um, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm happy to sort of make a recipe um, given to me by another chef or whatever but as i'm as i'm trying to do you know my own project or whatever it was getting a little frustrating trying to explain what it was to people so we just thought hey let's let's shoot it and you know it's sci-fi so shooting it entails you know building right. sets and building spaceships production and design and makeup that. and just so much i mean you know it w- it would end up being sort of on the cheaper scale of a of a sci-fi shoot, but that's still much more expensive than a regular shoot. You're doing you're making props and doing special effect makeup and all this stuff. So um, we sort of figured out that there is this old medium that is now a new medium, the radio um, stuff. And so we had a, had a couple. Ryan and I, my writing partner, had a couple of episodes already written, and then once it's once the sort of light bulb went off um, in our heads and say, hey, you know, we don't need to you know, raised $50,000, we can do this as a radio play. That changed everything for us. And then we had to actually go back and rewrite a lot of the stuff because there was a lot of visual humor that didn't translate. And there's, you know, because people can't see it, you have to have the either a narrator or the characters describe what's happening and what they're seeing. And so that represents, you know, it becomes its whole other set of challenges. Um, but because it's a comedy, all those challenges can also sort of turn into humor um, so we had a lot of fun uh, playing in that new sandbox. Um, yeah, and we're getting ready to release this year. It's it's a series, so we've already recorded a handful of them, six or seven, and I'm just in the editing process now, um, which is a whole nother Megillah. I tried to do a lot of sound live during our first session. Got a couple episodes like that, and I realized um, that it does help the actors a little bit, but they are actors and they can just act. And um, yeah. <laughs> it turns out that I think I'm going to end up getting more mileage out of uh, sweetening all the sound later. So it's been a process. You know, I started as um, as an actor and then moved to, to writing. And now that I'm also editing, I mean, that's really, the, you know, they say you make a, a movie or a project um, three times. You make it once when you write it, once when you film it, and once when you edit it. Um, and that is very true uh, as I'm learning the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you say the hard way, but I think that's really how you cut your teeth and how you really, really get in. Like you say, put in the sandbox. And I know for me, you know, there was so many times where I didn't edit when I was first starting out and I was in film school and I mm-hmm. you know, I learned how to edit. They taught us like actually in class because it was film school, but it wasn't until I really just surrendered to, like you said, being in the sandbox, just being there, getting getting your hands on the editor and really getting your hands dirty 
that you really experienced that that third iteration of it, like you said, the three kind mm-hmm. of births that we have, you know, writing, production, and, and editing. So I think um, to be able to, to really have, yeah, to really sink in and dig into all three of those aspects is really the only way to fully un- appreciate and understand the medium at all. Um, For sure. And it tough. also, it kind of seems bananas that I, you know, that now over the last course of the last year or so, um, year and a half, I've become an editor, and now my approach to directing is much different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to think directing was all about controlling every little emotion and stuff. And, and now as an editor, I really just need them to say the line clean so that I can <laughs> put it together later. Yeah. Um, you know, you cast good actors and who know how to do their job. And then, you know, your job as the director is no longer about sort of line reads and emotion and stuff. It really, you know, you become... Um, more of a mechanic and stuff. I think early on in the process as you're a writer, sure, there's a lot of art to that, but then it you know, slowly goes from art to craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm much more like a, you know, an iron welder or something um, in the later phase, which has influenced the entire process. You know, it's influenced how I, how I write the jokes, how um, I record um, what I say to the actors as it happens. So it's, you know, having learned this now, um, and th- at this juncture in my career, I'm sort of kicking myself, thinking, "Gosh, you know, if I had done this a decade ago, I would have been, you know, much better prepared for for all the things." But, you know, th- we'll see what the future holds. Now that I've got another feather in my cap, as it were. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's easy to to kind of look back and say, "Oh, if only I'd done this or that at this juncture." But, yeah, you really can't you really can't go about it that way because you'll just go insane. And I've I've done the same thing too, <laughs> where I was like, "Oh, if only I just." Uh, taking that editor class or whatever that my mom was trying to sign me up for, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. That's so poetic, really. <laughs> if, if only I knew now what I... Right. If only I knew then what I know now, you know, it's... Yeah. Classic, sort of. But you're on this journey now, and, and I can speak for myself. I, I got to uh, be part of this Last Best Hope show. Yes, you play so um, cool. a, a number of characters, but sort of, uh, first and foremost, the, the voice uh, of the ship. Was, um, D-O-U-G, Doug, the ship's computer, mm-hmm. very much like a HAL 9000. But, and he, right. he, he guys, you guys basically hooked me up with the funniest kind of, you know, the joke is built into his his very core where he's a duality between a captain, you know, the, the, the well-spoken and then the, the fritzing out. Uh, so the juxtaposition of him speaking very prim and proper and, and nice and polite and then kind of being like, we're all going to die if we don't do this. You know? <laughs> For sure. And the, that's an especially great character to play with um, as, as we are getting sort of more, um, we're all turning into cyborgs with our phones or whatever. And so there actually is a lot of humor in this half. Um, you know, he's a, he's a computer program, but he also is programmed with emotions. And so there's right. a lot of comedy that, that comes from, you know, he is the ship. You can talk to the ship. And then he's also got some snide, snide remarks. Um, yeah. Oh man, it's it's so much fun. He gets he gets a ton of laughs, and just getting to do it live, uh, having that live vibe, like you were just saying, and I, I think it really is a lot of fun to do it. Um, so you know, Neil and I, we did Danny's pajamas, which I know you're you're actually a big huge fan of. Huge fan. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, you've been a, a huge proponent, and um, that's great. If the listeners haven't heard it yet, you should definitely check it out. That's like a hard boiled detective um, sort of comedy radio play. Kind of like the shadow, which is what really got me into um, the radio play vibe. Um, oh, that's cool. a show from like pre-war America, like the thir- 1930s. Yeah, uh, 
and it's I've so heard good. some of it. I remember the movie in '94, and then I I got pretty into it. My dad, my <laughs> right. dad was starting to pull out some of the, the old vinyls, and and yeah, same here. I I got like I was like, oh, this guy's so cool. He's so mysterious, and he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then my dad's like, oh, you know, they used to do it before that you could even see anything. It was just all all audio, and I was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> It's so great. And the production value of, da- of pajamas is so great, too. And I think, you know, you can speak to it more, but it sounds like you guys are doing it one-on-one in an isolated booth, um, which gives you much more freedom later on in the editing bay. And we made a decision in Last Best Hope to do as many, as much live as we could. So the sound quality suffers a little bit. There's a tiny bit of echo, but I think it's sort of negligible um, because you get all these great... Um, reactions and emotions and and stuff in the moment jokes that i thought were so funny will sometimes land sort of flat in in the room and stuff that i didn't even really realize was funny will become you know some of the some of the most guffaws some of the loudest laughs in the entire show just because of how people react and a strange little pause here will sort of influence this or that so we tried to do as much of it live as possible um and i think we did for the most part for the crew is all live and the only thing that's canned Gosh, we're really getting behind um, behind the fake tinsel of Hollywood is the real tinsel, as they say. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think just the narrator voice and some other stuff is is added in later with the with the score and synthesizers, and it's really a Venn diagram for me. Is you know comedy, sci-fi, and then like weird synthesizer music, and so I created <laughs> a show where I where I get to do all three. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean just to finish my 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 beat before, but yeah the doing it live versus like you nailed it you know in pajamas it was very like one line at a time we would often would do a lot of takes and it's funny usually the first take or the last take were the best uh and it's funny we, we were listening to it all back and we we're like we're recording way too much we're but if we were going to do more uh like more episodes at once which right now we're focusing more on the sketch group no brow um so we've been doing more of the the visual stuff but if we were to get back to pajamas, I think we would probably try to find a little bit of a hybrid between our approach and, and the last best hope approach of having all the actors together. And you could just, and like you said, you get that live charm, you get that live just banter, you get, you feel it more, you know? Um, so I think both approaches work great, but yeah, I think we found that we had like all these middle takes, like take two through four or five where we were like, all right, uh, you think you're actually improving, but it's just starting to lose some of that when you just kind of throw the line out as if you were in real life. And I think that's most of acting uh, is trying to get back to that real vibe um, with your delivery. And it's funny, you, you work on it and you work on it and you work on it, but then you kind of have to throw the book out and really For just sure. feel it. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it's funny. I was rehearsing with uh, Ryan Grassmeyer, I think, a couple of days before we recorded the last chunk of Last Best Hope. And um, he was like, "Oh, we we shouldn't over prepare. Let's let's not overdo it. You know, we want to have some of that live kind of edge." Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it was really fun and watching and watching you direct uh, was really really cool. And yeah, getting to see the kind of the editor side where you're like, "I just need the clean line," but also you're, <laughs> yeah, you're knowing when it's kind of working and and the all the crew members on the ship are really a crew on a ship and kind of feeling those moments and backing it up and re, you know redoing a moment or just letting it breathe. You know, so. It was really, really cool to, uh, to to watch you in the director's chair on on this one. It was so exciting. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a Herculean task, but it is a group effort. You know, um, I was enamored with the idea of being a director, but 
um, after having been an editor too, I, I realized how much of, of a team sport it is. And I'm really just, absolutely, to, you know, everyone, everyone else is doing something super important and I'm just making sure that the lines are clean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, a good director, I think has to just know when to know when to kind of bow out or, you know, if the ship's, if the ship's running smoothly, in this case, the actual ship, uh, the USS, <laughs> USSS Bittersweet Symphony. Indeed. Uh, and I get was it, was there enough S's that I did I get all the S's? There, there were enough S's. We may add another one. For <laughs> <two>. Yeah, <laughs> as you should. So yeah, the actual <laughs> ship is humming. Um, in this case, you know the actual ship. But yeah, so uh, yeah, or knowing when to kind of step in and and or knowing when to be like, yeah, go with your idea. And I think surrendering the ego is is very is very important. Uh, when for sure. Direct. Yeah, I think a lot of people get into directing because they have a big ego and they say, well, I want to be in charge. I want to be the boss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone's going to do what I say or whatever. And then once you're in the, the chair, it's like, well, that that all has to go out the window, because if you're just making decisions to make yourself look good, you know, the only way that you look good as a director is if everyone else looks good. So it's true. Um, yeah, it's much more collaborative than you think. You know, if you're a painter or a write, you know, book writer or whatever. It's just you in a room with a paintbrush. But something like this, there's like 15 actors and uh, everyone's sort of coming at it from a different direction. And um, it's just my job to sort of be the nexus and try and, um, um, you know, try and focus that, focus all, focus everyone else's um, effort into, into something that is hopefully sort of funny while you're stuck in traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, oh man! Now the now they're I guess they're saying LA is cleaner than ever. You can the visibility is so good because there hasn't been much traffic because uh, most of us have been stuck at home in quarantine. But mm-hmm. uh, now people are reaching out to podcasts because they're stuck at home. So it's like you're stuck somewhere. <laughs> there are people stuck and they need something and they need and that's where you come in, Nick. And uh, I'm really glad you're there for us all because <laughs> we're all stuck right now. <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, it is, you know, this most recent project, this Last Best Hope sci-fi thing, is is really an escape. You know, it's a crew, um, they get lost in space and time, and then sort of hilarity ensues. So my hope and dream is that when people, you know, put on their headphones, they really do get to go um, on an adventure out into the the depths of space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, Well, I know as an actor, when I'm in that room, um, we're all got our scripts in front of us, I really... I really do feel like I'm on that ship. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so much fun. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, so we got Cooper Barnes, who I guess Ryan met through uh, his work on Henry Danger. And now there's uh, Danger Force, the spinoff. But he's come in yeah, to be we the were captain. Really, we were really lucky to cast him. I mean, just to talk about the cast a little bit, the captain is played by Cooper Barnes, who plays Captain Man on Danger Force on Nickelodeon. Um, his wife plays our um, lead engineer, and she also plays the teenager, so she switches between two voices. She's insane, um, yeah. Her, watching her switch Liz back and Stewart. forth. Liz Stewart, yeah. She's yeah. unbelievable, and like the switching back and forth is just ridiculous. It's staggering. So brilliant. We were so lucky to cast both of them. Um, and yeah, uh, Haley Wells plays our um, mystic. Um, Ryan Grassmeyer plays the doctor slash sort of security officer. I'm the narrator. Uh, in a big, deep, booming voice, um, <laughs> I play some guest stars too. Uh, we got Patty Connor as our lovable robot Chumbo Rumba. Yeah, um, Patty, who's done some work on Orville, uh, terrific actor, also a really exceptional uh, assistant director, production 
person as well. He's he's you know jack of all trades, king of all trades, I should say. <laughs> For sure. I mean, a lot of really great comedy actors that we that we've assembled. Um, and Cooper Barnes, who this Nickelodeon guy, I just I mean, we were so lucky to to have that happen. I, Ryan Grassmeyer plays a, a bad guy on that Nickelodeon show, Henry Danger. Yeah, stupid Jeff. Um, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of was picking. Cooper's ear and Cooper who's been playing a captain for like eight years you know he's like the superhero in the show right so for him to transition into more like sort of Kirk captain um was so easy for him and he's he is doing something different though he's got a bit more swagger you know our show is for adults there's nothing really you know gross or off color about it but there's the occasional swear word and it's you know it's really made for um a a young adult and adult audience right Um, and so seeing him sort of get to do that, to drop an F-bomb as he's been trapped in Nickelodeon land for eight years <laughs> has been also, and you can, I can tell, you know, when he's, um, that he's really sinking his teeth into like being an adult. Gets captain. to unleash, unleash a little <laughs> bit, untighten, untighten his belt a little bit, let it, for uh, sure. let it come out. Yeah. He's <laughs> so funny. And I got to do, uh, what was the episode? Uh, time Cradle. Or no, uh, time. It was a time. Time loop. travel tourism is a good time one. travel sort of, tourism. We got to play these. Uh, time. Yeah, yeah. They, they find a place where um, uh, it's sort of based on the Foo Fighters, not the band, but there there's these UFOs from World War II that people don't know where they came from or what they are. Is it is it just a warship that we didn't understand? But there there are these reports during these air battles um, over Europe and the Pacific theater that there's these giant ships that are like above the battle watching it and so one theory is that they're you know who knows if if this is real or not but there are people who say well these these are these ships that we're seeing are time travelers who just go back in time to like watch these famous battles of world war ii and i thought that was so interesting um that that as a concept um that we plug that into an episode you know our crew's trying to find their way back through space and time back to earth to save to save earth from an apocalypse um and so when they come across this time travel tourism thing, they think, well, this is great. We're going we're gonna to be able to use this to get back home. Uh, that is not the case. Um, but they, they do get to go um, do some time travel tourism, um, which ends up being kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, getting to play these, these kind of cowboys. And uh, I mean, Cooper got to be kind of like a Tweedledee and Tweedledum at one point. Uh, I think it was uh, East, Easton and Weston, I believe, were our names. That's right, yes. Uh, the sort of frontier um, cowboy. Yeah. So that was, oh, man, it was it was just a blast. And So, um, yeah, you mentioned that you started in the acting world. I know I keep hearing rumors that there's this Pizza Hut ad going around with Nick Chandler uh, <laughs> that you were in contention for, speaking of Spielberg, the second Jurassic Park movie, Lost World, that you were close to uh, being cast as, I guess, the son of Jeff Goldblum. They ended up changing it completely to Yeah, the I daughter. mean, so all of this is true. The rumors are true. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I started in, um, in Los Angeles. Um, I moved when I was like 11 um, after doing an open casting call for a Lassie reboot that they were doing like in the 90s. Um, oh, I, I remember that. So many callbacks. It was like twelve callbacks and scene tests and the dog tests and wow. all that stuff. And they ended up going with someone else. But the casting director, who's working at Paramount at the time, uh, Heather Axelrod, who's the daughter of um, the famous Axelrod, who wrote um, *Breakfast at Tiffany's* and all these great movies, um, she ended up 
representing me as a, as a manager, and I spent the next like five or six years, um, half of the year in, in California doing pilot season. And wow, at eleven years old to sixteen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, um, that's young. It was great. I I had a really good time. I know there's a, some stigma with young actors, um, as it should be. Um, but my personal experience was super positive. I got to learn all these new tricks um, about acting and just about public speaking and how to hold yourself. Um, all these, all these great little tricks. Um, and I was moderately successful. I'm, you know, I ended up making enough money to put myself through about half of college when, when that came around. Um, that's amazing. Just, just little ads. Um, I guess they were relatively big now that I'm thinking about them. Wendy's, um, Volkswagen, Sprite, these sorts of spots. Never heard of any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a really fun time in my life, and I, I um, learned so much at that time. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite notes I learned was about um, taking notes as an actor. And my, I had an acting coach who, who would say that, you know, this is great. Take the note. Take whatever input that you're receiving from all these different vectors, if it's the director or an acting coach or even your scene partner, and they're, they're giving you all this information, and then you, it's your job as the actor to digest it and just literally get rid of most of it as though it were food. Like, take all the good notes that mm. are food, eat the food, and then literally expel the food, crap it out, get rid of it all, <laughs> and just, just keep the tiniest part of it that was the good note and get rid of the other because um, sometimes when you hear a note, that, uh, there's a little gem in there, but the whole thing can be um, can get you off your balance or whatever. Yeah, so, and like like you have to find your your center, find your chi in the moment, and so too much too much data all at once can, like you said, be disorienting. Mm-hmm. From my experience, but yeah, right. that's, that's a really that's a really good piece of that's a really good kernel there, Nick. <laughs> there's so many little kernels and you know I started in Boulder and so some of my acting coaches were very hippy dippy and crystals and building mm-hmm. psychic prisons of emotion and all this stuff Ooh. so and that so and I I my own practice you know going back to the take take the note as though it were food and get rid get rid of the rest you know really every note that you hear should be like that so yeah it's great to build these um, um, reservoirs of emotion but it's also you know just good to hit your mark and open your eyes and look in the right direction so there's you know there's so much emotional work and there's just also so much like technical crap to deal with too as an actor oh yeah um but yeah i mean i i had a blast i was up for a lot of big things that i didn't get um which can be sort of devastating but has prepared me uh for a life as an adult which can be uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know less than ideal at some times yeah we all have to learn how to deal with some element of rejection (laughs) some (laughs) percentage Yes, trying to show a little bit of um, grace under fire uh, at all times can be helpful, especially during a pandemic. Um, mm. But yeah, the rumors are true. I was up for a bunch of roles. I, you know, I almost got that Flipper role when they rebooted Flipper. They were like, oh, wow, it yeah. Lassie. Was that Elijah, Elijah got, Wood got it, I think? <laughs> Elijah Wood, that son of a bitch. No, he's wonderful. <laughs> um, I met him once ages ago. He was very kind. But um yeah, I was up for that. I was up for like Anakin Skywalker for a while. Oh, wow. Although I was I was too old to be young Anakin and too young to be you know sort of teenage Anakin. Um, but I think that they were still writing it while they were casting, which does happen. Um, there was a role in Seven, that really creepy movie Seven. Oh wow! The yeah, Jason, the David they, Fincher. They like wrote out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did. I was up for Jurassic Park too. And I was a huge fan of Jurassic Park when it came out. My cousin and I 
probably saw it like 13 times in the theater. Oh, wow. Just devastating our, our parents' pocketbooks. Like, we got to go back. To see, <laughs> we got we to see this dinosaur movie again. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was up for that. And ended up having so many callbacks. I think there was like five, four or five callbacks. And oh, well, so like, that many, huh? You just go and you read with like a casting director or whatever. And then if you get a callback, you go and see either the real casting director or some sort of producer or creative. And so I had done that and I was on like my third callback. And they're like, we love what you're doing with this character. It was Jeff Goldblum's kid. Um, they're like, we love what you're doing. There is some uh, physical work for the role. There's like these uneven bars can you do the uneven bars? And I was like, yeah, of course, of course I can. Because I was in all these acting classes and they were telling me to say stuff like, yes, and, and, you know, <laughs> always say yes to the moment and stand up and be counted and, you know, puff your chest up and say, say yes. So I was like, yeah, pff, uneven, uneven bars, forget about it. Uh, every day. So they were like, <laughs> great. It was like my fifth callback was in this giant, like Olympic sized gym in LA. And I was a little bit nervous because I was really oh, wow. nailing the, the reads or whatever, mm-hmm. and were, you know. But I don't know how to do the uneven bars. And that became very apparent to everyone in the room, you know, 30 seconds after saying, go ahead and just show us a flip or whatever. And it was one of the most embarrassing things that had ever happened to me because I, you know, I was just trying to just trying to be a, an actor guy. And no, I mean, once you're uh, chalked up your hands and on the uneven bars, have, having never done that before, um, it's, it, can, it can be a little humbling. Um, so anyway, yeah. I didn't get that role, and I don't know if you've seen the film, but <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's child in that film is a uh, African American young girl, um, which is not at all uh, what I am or was. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it became an ongoing joke, you know. In our family, we used to say like, "Oh, you're saying I can't act? Like you should have just told me you needed a um, gymnast, African American girl." Yeah. Um, but you never know in Hollywood, you know, I sort of, I got the curly hair and the, the look. I could maybe play Jeff Goldblum's kid, but not if, not if it was a, a black woman. So, <laughs> you know, that's yes. Hollywood. Even you have your <laughs> limits, Nick Chandler. <laughs> I tried. Uh, <laughs> as broad as they are, as wide as they are. That's, that is such a funny story, my goodness. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's one of those things where you just really don't, like you said, they might have even been writing while they were doing it, and they probably pivoted, you know, deep into the casting process to obviously make her a, a black girl. And oh, we want to make I sure like that to, she can kick a yeah. raptor in the face with a with a triple axle or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know Jimmy's terms, but <laughs> I like to think that it that it was me that they were going to go with me for sure. And then when I couldn't do the gymnast stuff, they were like, just find a gymnast, and that's that's how yeah. it happened. Well, that's all I'm going to remember as well. <laughs> no, that's that's the truth, and. Uh, <laughs> We as the victors get to rewrite the past, so uh, here we are. And, um, but and it's that's funny that you know we've chosen Jaws for this week's movie, and I, you know I saw I saw it in reverse, which is to say you know I, I was so into Jurassic Park, and then I I realized or someone told me that Spielberg had done E.T. These were both sort of cornerstone films for me as a kid growing up, as a child, absolutely. The, you know, eighties and nineties. And then I sort of was like, well, what else did he do? And that's how I, you know, one of the ways that I that I found Jaws. Um. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna watch Jaws in a little bit here, but I like to do what's uh, Ferberg Adam Ferberg called it the preamble postamble. Mm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt that for some of the preamble that I, I gotta I gotta confess. Normally I would allow the guest to 100% pick, and Nick definitely did, did pick, but I was really reaching for this movie lately. Because um, a couple of weeks ago, my buddy Rich King 
sent me an email um, that Lee Fierro, who plays the uh, the the ill the the boy who dies the second death in the movie in Jaws, dies mm-hmm. on the raft. That uh, she actually passed away in early April this of this month of 2020. Okay, so the the mom of the kid who gets eaten. Yeah, the little boy. Exactly. Who like sla- who slaps the uh, police chief. Right, 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 right. She wow. famously was wow. like, "You knew, and you let him anyway." Uh, Lee mm-hmm. Fierro, Mrs. Kint, Mrs. Kittner, Kittner, the Kittner mm-hmm. boy. So the Kittner boy gets killed. So anyway, I I got an email from my buddy Rich saying that Lee, R.I.P. She passed away. She was 91 years old. Uh, so you know, it's it's a it's a good long life, but complications to COVID 19 was was what killed her. Wow. Uh, so. Suddenly, I was like, Jaws, and it just hit me in the face. We're talking about keeping the economy open or reopening the economy. Um, there's a lot of criticism on our federal government uh, and our president for not responding quick enough in, in these quarantines, and now the U.S. leads the world in, uh, in mounting cases of COVID-19 and also fatalities, um, which is frightening. We're, we're watching about two to three thousand americans die every day right now from it and there was some talk about wanting to get the economy back open for easter which just passed fortunately we, we didn't and i was like wow okay open the economy up so that we can be killed and murdered by this disease that doesn't care about us it doesn't care about our political alignments doesn't care about our spiritual alignments just wants to swim and eat and uh, so now I was like, "Hey Nick, you like Jaws, right?" And I know you're, I know you're a big Spielberg fan, and um, I, you're like, oh, "Of course I love Jaws." And uh, so I kind of, I kind of co-opted. It was a little bit of artifice at play this time, but I just, um, just this movie, man. It's about right now. It's, it's crazy. It's, I, I think it's one of those cautionary tales that has become such a cult phenomenon or a pop phenomenon. It was massive hit. It, it's. Given the honor of inventing the summer blockbuster, it's given the honor of of being one of those like popcorn movies that just changed the game. Uh, you had a really really young Spielberg cut a, cut his teeth on this one. Um, he'd done a couple of movies before, but uh, this really really made him. And um, I can't believe he was like twenty five or six when he directed this movie. That's really crazy, young guy. And he you know was given the honor of being one of the hardest movies to make as well, obviously it all paid off, but was, was supposed to be somewhere like a 50-day shooting schedule became a 140-day shoot, which is crazy. Um, but just being on the water and having so many water components and water elements and obviously the shark and uh, and all those those things coming into play, it just became one of the most grueling and long production schedules we've still seen in America, in American cinema, not, you know, let alone cinema period. So this movie is just has such a special place for so many, but, uh, it, it's about, I can't stop thinking about it now. Um, that for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really of, of the moment. Um, and who, who is the actress who passed, who, who played the, the mom? Um, I mean, she, Lee Fierro. Lee Fierro. I mean, yeah. and to her good credit, she really, you know, that's sort of the beginning of Act Two when, I mean, I'm excited to see it again. We're about to watch it again, but I, you know, of course I've seen it so many times. Right. And her, her emotion when she slaps him and, um, it really ups the stakes and makes it, you know, 
the her her ability to to do that and play the grieving mother um, just makes us so involved, and I think it changes it from like you know the first act is this sort of like slasher movie or whatever, but then as we get into Act Two, which she ushers in with that slap, um, it really like drives it home and says, "Hey, this is you know this kid just died," and then of course we see like the cops' kids immediately, so she really raises the stakes, and her performance is great. So I'm I'm sorry to hear of her passing. Um, yeah, was, you know, really really made that movie um you know really underlined how um how important it is for all the characters to sort of come together to defeat defeat this beast or whatever and it is so of the moment i mean obviously the the mayor in jaws is very much like our current president and yeah um, murray hamilton as uh (laughs) mayor vaughn who does a tremendous job he's actually the he plays the father in the graduate so that's okay uh, plastics yeah yeah exactly uh so i'll always know him as uh the mayor from jaws but um yeah but he's a terrific actor and he he really nails this part and like you said there really is that hinge moment where this isn't this isn't a game anymore this is like people's Mm -hmm. lives obviously you know chief brody uh is as our as our hero um is he's incredible, Roy Scheider? He really is, what a what a great part. And I guess Spielberg had just seen um, French Connection, so he was like, "Oh, I really wanted like a gritty kind of guy to kind of spearhead this movement." But um, actually, you and I chatted on the phone a couple of days ago, and you you brought up that uh, yeah, he he in the movie he is from New York, and he's new, and now he's he's in this town of Amity uh, where they filmed yeah. Martha's Vineyard. So it's like that kind of I mean, juxtaposition of like a city cop, like now mm-hmm. out here in the, in the, in the boonies. Um, so kind of right. out of his I own. Mean, yeah. There's a lot going on. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the mayor is like trying to keep the economy going, um, and mm-hmm. sending people to their, to their desk. So that's pretty much of the moment. Amity is a summer but, town. We need summer dollars. Oh, <laughs> we need summer dollars. There it is. Uh, but there's also a lot of class stuff that's going on in Jaws that I didn't, I didn't see, I, you know, my first couple watchings. Um, right. And maybe now. When you were like becoming... 11 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe now that we're becoming more class conscious, I mean, there's definitely stuff going on. Yeah. So the, he's this big city cop from New York who's come to like, essentially just have a vacation with his wife because there's like no crime here. The only complaints are like people parking in the wrong spots or whatever. And now there's this like big killer monster. He's like, ah, crap, I got to do this. And then, so the, my favorite character is a kid. Um, the scientist guy, what's his name? Oh, um, Matt Hooper. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Dreyfuss. Yeah. So good. But then, you know, it turns out he's this like trust fund kid who's got this big boat and right. has all these toys and stuff. And, you know, so it's really these two men who are way out of their depth. I mean, the scientist, sure, he knows about sharks and can perform the autopsy, but he's really like a lab guy. And they even mentioned that. He's like, I'm sure you're, you know, your big fancy lab, but now you're out here in the real ocean. So it's really mm-hmm. like these two city guys who go onto this boat with this, um, you know, poor working class captain who is the only one who actually knows about fishing and um and this monster they're trying to catch so there's there's a very big class divide in the film too that i didn't really realize oh absolutely i I, i'm so glad you touched on that Uh, because you know we're seeing the economic and class kind of stratification impact right now with uh 
COVID-19. And it's just, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's really just highlighting kind of those disparities that are still present and still affecting how this is playing out, you know, 45 years after, after this film, Jaws. Uh, and yeah, you really, the three guys kind of coming together, you know, uh, Dreyfus, um, Roy Scheider, and then Robert Shaw, who actually unfortunately didn't live much longer beyond this movie, the actor, uh, oh, wow. uh, you know, I actually know him always as Quint from this movie, but my father is also a big uh, Sting fan, so we would watch the Sting a lot, and uh, he plays mm. the, the heavy in uh, in Sting, and I was like getting to see the kind of juxtaposition of those two roles. I was like, oh my god, it's him from Jaws, and I remember being like, <laughs> they're so different. He's he, what a good actor, you know. Yeah. So um, so I think he's the old school kind of badass, like grizzled fisherman. He's finally like, you want Annie up, or do you want to be on welfare? You know. Like, if we're going to do this, I need this amount of money. This is what I need. Sure, you the know. caviar. Don't forget the color TV. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He has his demands. He's like, I got these rich yuppies by the balls now, and they're going to play my game. So, yeah, like you said, seeing all the kind of class stuff work itself out, and, and the three of these together, and it's such a – Matt Hooper and him are really like this odd couple, and they're like literally like don't love each other, and then they're kind of like this arguing – like old couple or something and then they they have the the big scene at the end where they're sitting around right before the last strike from the shark uh, and they're kind of comparing war stories and they're finally bonding and you can see that they're really like the love for each other is really starting to grow so we get to see yeah like you said people from all sides of the coin uh thrust together so i really think this movie is just hitting so many notes um we'll watch it here soon but it just yeah, it's really an allegory for so many fun things. And I think there's a reason that it was such a big hit. I mean, on the surface, A, it's a fun movie. It's gripping. It's harrowing. You know, you don't you don't think about all those things consciously, I think, when you watch it. But it's obviously hit really, really deep notes. Um, speaking of notes. And uh, <laughs> it's obviously just, it's just as fighting as ever to use the the metaphor biting because it's about a shark, but <laughs> uh, yeah, there's something about this movie that just has dug deep into the annals of Americana and world. I'm excited. Cinema. I'm excited yeah. to see it again. Yeah. Maybe um, we should, uh, before we ramble on too much more on jaws, maybe we should uh, watch it. <laughs> there's my cat. Who's also excited. Uh, yeah. Let's see it. Uh, let's watch it. Let's do it. And um, then we can keep talking about it and uh, why it's so right on the money. Okay, Still. cool. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, folks, we'll be back in, uh, for you, it'll just be a few seconds. For us, it will be the duration of the 1975 Spielberg classic, Jaws. All right, we have just watched the 1975 masterpiece wow movie uh jaws which four letters somehow sums up such a gigantic ordeal this movie man. i mean it's wow. it's brilliant it, it holds up sometimes you don't know uh hey it was great as a kid or whatever is it gonna hold up the test of time i think you know music is like that too like yeah it was cool when i first heard it but is it still good and ja- yeah jaws is Jaws is still good. It's a classic. I think it's on the AFI list. Um, I don't know if it's in the Criterion Collection, but um, it holds up. It yeah. holds up. It's 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 stunning. Um, getting to watch it in uh, in 1080 
on, on my wall here. It was um, really a treat. I'm catching more and more things that... I remember actually watching it at Miami, University of Miami, where I went to film school. We did watch it, and uh, we had a movie theater on campus. It was like a one-screener, and that was really exciting, mm-hmm. and that was for us, for school. And I remember everyone saying the same thing. It was like a bunch of really, really like tough film nerds that you know think they know everything. I was one of them as well, um, film, film students. But this movie just played, it ran, it, it just not a peep, you know, it humbled everyone. It's just like, man, this movie holds up. And, you know, you say, like, oh, is it still going to hold up? And even some of the um, the things where you're like, am I going to cringe when I see the shark? Uh, when I was a kid, I felt like I thought that the shark looked okay. But now, I think it looks fantastic. I mean, I, I think they great. really... It's all practical. Yeah, you know, all practical. There's no CG. It's like a plastic shark or whatever. It looks great. Yeah, it looks great. And, you know, famously, the shark wouldn't work, um... There was actually a 2007 documentary called "The Shark Still Works," I think, uh, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that yeah. I mean, I've heard that story for sure, where it's like, oh, they wanted to show more of the shark, but they couldn't because they they could never get it to work, and they really, you know, I think he leaned in on it, um, Spielberg and whoever else was sort of driving those decisions um, really well, because I think a lot of the suspense and horror comes from the unknown. I mean, that's that's. That's what the ocean is anyway. It's like all these monsters that lurk in the deep. Um, we can't see them because we're land creatures and stuff. So mm-hmm. it really worked out well. Like, I think if we'd seen more of it, it would have been a little cheesy. I mean, look at Jaws 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. All the sequels, you see a lot more of the shark. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, you know, what? I guess what we really Jaws loved in as an space. audience was like not knowing. And seeing those, you know, there's a really cool thing that they do early on where you're seeing through Jaws's eyes, you know, and you're like, wow, I'm now I'm, I get the POV of the monster. But then in like act two or whatever, you're just seeing, you're just seeing their legs underwater and you're not sure if it's the POV of the shark or if it's just a shot of the underwater. Right. And it's like you not knowing what that is or the audience not knowing what that is, is like adding to the horror of it. Like, are we just looking at legs or are we the monster looking at the legs? Like, yeah no that's really really uh interesting yeah like keeping you guessing and staying ahead of the audience because the second that the audience kind of is ahead of you or caught up to you then it loses a lot of that that bite um right and yeah i mean it's one of those things where you know they said that if the shark had worked the way they wanted it to it would be a totally different movie and um probably i don't think would be as strong and in the original script i was watching the making of in the original script um that they had uh, hammered out between Peter eventually took a shot, the the novelist who wrote the the book of the same name. Oh, okay. um, they kind of did some rewrites, kind of everyone had a crack at it. Spielberg actually said he sat down and wrote it all out just more for himself, so, so he could kind of wrap his head around how he wanted the through line to be and really visualize the story. So everyone kind of had a crack at it, and it, it had morphed a few times, and the original – the original uh, opening was, you know, the girl swimming by the buoy, and we would actually see this shark – uh, breach and 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 get this girl, mm. but uh, mm-hmm. Spielberg's like, oh, that would be a real like monstery moment, and I really wanted it to be not showing you there. So I think he decided to do it with, and they famously did the rig where they tugged her around, and um, you know yeah. she was just uh, <laughs> it so good. It's so cool, uh, yeah. And the, the first mm-hmm. like, what? And then you know hearing the hearing the audio, the um, and it, again, like you said, the invisible enemy, which is what Trump was calling COVID-19. <laughs> oh, right. Sure. So again, there's that, just that parallel of this thing that we can't see that is, and it's much more horrifying that way where, you know, they even said like, even Peter Benchley, when he wrote um, Jaws, he had, he actually had the beginning of it where he had, uh, he had it written 
about this shark, um, and he kind of shelved it. And then he saw in the paper that there was an actual great white shark that had wandered out of its normal feeding pattern territory mm-hmm. and uh, started attacking. But he was like, you know, sharks, if you, if you do the math, they kill less people than, like, stuffed animals being thrown out of a car and hitting you in the head, you know, like, the fatality rates. But there is something so primal and so um, mysterious about these sharks and they're, they're these eating machines and again they don't care about they don't care how old you are they don't care you know whatever they just they're there to they're just eating machines and they even say that in the right. movie that they just swim and that they eat very much like a virus they little shark. and they make little sharks <laughs> right. which viruses make more viruses <laughs> so uh, you know there's this these viruses are like a genetic machine and they're always like when i was growing up in biology class they were like oh we're not even sure if viruses are really alive and this guy was actually one of the questions on a test and you had to kind of like pick your stance was it alive or not mm-hmm. um so the line is definitely kind of blurred there it's like is this even like an you know this isn't a creature or an organism it's more of a just a genetic machine that just consumes and replicates and does that very well um so the parallels are, are definitely there so you know the use of the the camera and making it invisible uh, was just so striking and so iconic. Whereas like in Star Trek, apparently they wanted to have the the shuttlecraft um, in T- in the original series in TOS. They wanted to have the shuttlecraft, um, but they didn't have it done yet, and they didn't have the budget yet. They were like, well, we're just gonna go into a pad and we're gonna disappear, and then you're gonna reappear on the surface of the planet every week. And that <laughs> now ended it's up being like a cornerstone of of Star Trek lore, the transporter. Right. Yeah, I I read some interview with um, David Lynch who did Dune, and I think he was talking more about. Um, I guess he was talking about Dune and Twin Peaks uh, about reductive producing, where like they weren't gonna throw enough money at him to do what he wanted. Um, on both these shows, so you just work with what you've got, and that that's how he ended up making all this this brilliant stuff. Um, yeah, because you just use what what you have, which I think is great. I mean, obviously he had a lot; he had all these sound stages and stuff to do Dune and um, that Twin Peaks show. But he they didn't give him carte blanche, and I think that's kind of great because now you have all this weird suspense that you wouldn't have had. You know, how can you make you know like in Jaws? You're just like watching a fishing twine, and it's like I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, wow, did, it, did the fishing twine just clink? You know, you're just looking at a prop or whatever, but you're imagining right. this, like, the most monstrous thing on planet Earth, which is this leviathan or the, the you know, the whale, the the great white whale from Moby Dick or or the, um, uh, the shark from Jaws. I mean, it's literally the most monstrous thing you could think of, like the biggest, most horrible monster until you get into science fiction, like... If you're gonna stay grounded in reality, the shark or the or the whale is is the most monstrous thing on Earth, you know. Yeah, until you know, Sharknado came into play. <laughs> Definitely had the accolade of being the scariest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> and part of its fear, you know, if if there's a lion, like you you see the lion running at you, but what's so scary about the shark is it's like even if it's right in front of you, you can't really see it. Like that shot where he's chumming. And the shark comes right up at, at him. Oh my gosh! You know you don't you don't really see it until it's like three or four feet out, you know, uh, in into the water coming out, and that that's what's like truly horrifying is it could be anywhere. Absolutely. And in fact, how I even learned about Jaws is like I was a kid. We went to the Boulder Reservoir in Boulder, Colorado, and I was just like swimming around having fun. And my uh, I had two. I still have two older sisters. 
uh, and they were talking about Josh with my, with my mom because I guess when it came out in the 70s, they were so terrified that they like could not go into the into the lake anymore, even though it was a lake in Colorado and chances of shark attacks are very small in Colorado lakes. Uh, but they were just so terrified of it. And I was like, yeah, what? what is this? And they were telling me about it as I was like in the water and they're like singing the song or whatever. So I actually first heard about Jaws like through the mythology of um, of cinema or whatever. Like they just described it to me and we're singing the song and, you know, we're pre- pretending to get me or whatever. And I was that was my intro to it, and then when I, you know, I think I went home that week and, and watched it. Um, but it's interesting just to hear a mythology before you actually even see, you know, <laughs> before you see the actual thing. The movie is so big that it comes with this mythology. And I think not um, to be understated is, is the score, that especially the Jaws theme gets a lot of love. And it is really brilliant, but ha- having just seen it, a lot of the music is really cheesy. Like, no one can argue the Jaws theme, brilliant. Scary, suspenseful, there's the monster coming to get you, amazing. But a lot of it is like this whimsical, like Rodgers and Hammerstein sort of musical music, which I think, I, I don't know if that is, is good or bad. Essentially, it, it tells us how to feel. We should feel this, like, whimsical adventure um, which definitely takes some of the edge off as they're in the boat and you sort of hear these like pastoral symphonic things, um, the French horn and this like triumphant sound. Wow, it's really <laughs> oh, cool no. to hear you uh, break down the, the music. Actually, Nick is uh, a musician as well. And you were saying how, you know, you the Venn diagram of everything you wanted when you were uh, embarking <laughs> on uh, Last Bus Soap, you know, in the sci-fi yes. comedy and mm-hmm. uh and synthesizers synthesizer music i've seen yeah. your um you actually you taught me the term that it was a synth nest i think you you use the term uh all the yeah there's a place where you sit i'm in it now yes i'm sitting in it now actually re- recording yeah. you're the captain of the synth nest Not turned on yeah i was just I was like that's a really awesome way to put it but it's great it's really funny to see you know it's like everyone thinks oh this music is so great in jazz but having just seen it there's a bunch of weird carnival music that no one seems to remember (laughs) right you don't don't think it's like a little bit less brilliant yeah i think you know that was probably a product of the time the vernacular of the time playing itself out um i mean john williams's rank in in senate in senate history is is insane and uh, yeah, I mean, well, apparently the story was uh, that he literally played uh, the music for for Steve for Steven Spielberg, and he just did the two notes on it on a piano, and he was like, "Oh, here's mm-hmm. the music," dun, 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 dun. and and he was like, "What? <laughs> that seems a little." Uh, but it's the, a what? Yeah, you're joking, right? And he was like, "No, no, I'm, I'm like, that's what you've been working on for two months, you know? <laughs> that's it." Uh, I'm probably embellishing the, the story a bit, but uh, you know, like. The simplicity of it, though, and the effectiveness of the simplicity, and again, going back to just showing the camera, showing the POV of the camera, there's a simple choice. Like you mm-hmm. said, reductive. I liked what you said, reductive producing, where use what you have and less is more, and that's the expression mm-hmm. we hear a lot of the time. But now, now we have the world at our fingertips. You can create a CGI you know, space battle. Um, so we're, I think we're starting to see more of a blend of CG and practical again, because I think really like our generation and um, the people kind of entering the the game now are obviously you know huge fans of the more practical landscape and but um, from a music standpoint i mean simple like it's a shark it all it does again it's a biological machine it swims eats makes baby sharks 
and it's just perfect. Um, so yeah, say what you want about the whole score as a whole. Um, the orchestral, there are probably a few couple swell moments that were a little heavy-handed, which I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, I think it's brilliant. It does take the curse off a little bit. It's like, oh, okay, I can still have fun. You know, this can still be a swashbuckling adventure, you know, especially Act 4, 3, 4, 5, when they're out on the boat. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. It would just be like too, we'd be pulling your hair out too much if we didn't have that French horn telling us like, no, this is an adventure. You can enjoy yourself <laughs> a little bit, have a drink, you know? Right. Yeah. And then this, this movie, it's kind of hard to put it in a box. It's, it's definitely, a, I mean, some people say it's not a horror and the horror thriller line is obviously always in contention and still like, it's kind of a, a taste thing. Like I would say alien is definitely a pure horror, but where's that line but you nailed it like it's that fun adventure and it's spielberg you know and that's why his movies cross that line to be so memorable and and as kids i mean i think he was able to channel that inner kid and jaws he was still a kid which is kind of hard to believe it's funny you watch the making of and he's like so young and his he doesn't even have a beard yet he hasn't grown the beard um <laughs> like jonathan frakes and tng but uh yeah it's just like the ability to capture that childlike element, uh, the, that wonder, um, transcends. And I think that's what fills so many seats. I mean, there's so many reasons why he fills so many seats. They're, his movies are strong, they're well-casted, they're iconic. Yeah, you know, but, it's, but... Stan- it's standing the test of time because it's doing... some. You know, Often you'll only get one conflict. You'll get man versus another man, or you'll get man versus nature, or man versus himself. Mm-hmm. And this one is doing all three, and, and probably more... Um, because you've got man versus nature as like, you know, they're hunting this monster shark. Man versus himself as, you know, this guy can't really swim. He's the city cop. He's trying to do what's right for the town, protect his family. and But he doesn't really have um, the tools that he needs. And then man versus society as, you know, as he's up against the bureaucracy of, of the governor or the, or the mayor. Uh, so it's doing, it's doing all three at once, which I think helps... Um, sort of solidified if it was just doing one or two uh, it wouldn't have that same sort of lasting power because now you have the monster of uh, you know the monster of the teeth of the jaws fish and then the monster of sort of the limits of self and how um, you know no man is an island and um, if you're really going to go out hunting like you have it's a team sport um, and you have to come together uh, to do that. And then you have, of course, Man vs. Society as, as they're battling. Um, and e- even, the, even the fact that they go out to, to kill the thing is like this other societal thing. I mean, at one point they say there's two options. You can either n- not go swimming or kill the shark. But there's never like a third option where we're like environmental conservatory people who like want to save the shark or whatever. And so it, right. there's like an unspoken societal thing that's happening too, which is just like a product of the 70s where it's like we have to kill this monster. And I think that if you tried to do that now, they'd be like, well, this is rude. You know, <laughs> this is rude. You got to free willy this guy. You can't just <laughs> shoot him with a shark. <laughs> yeah, um, he's actually like a 26-foot shark is actually kind of a rare phenomenon and uh this like you said i never even thought of that element like the preserving it and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah for sure no it's definitely like kill or be killed more like um and shutting down the beach is not an option and again how it's really such a cautionary tale about so many elements but like yeah here we are we we have an economy that's the greatest economy in the world quote unquote uh and now uh, um, basically brought to its knees because we've shut down to 
in the word social distancing. I didn't know a month ago, you know, and now it's a word we hear every day. So it's right. like what we have to do to combat this thing. Um, and in the case of Jaws, it's one shark. But uh, right. I, but I, who's the real monster? Is it the shark who's just doing his, who's just like trying to survive or whatever? Or is it the mayor who's just trying to get rich off the backs of these tourists, these summer dollars or whatever, mm-hmm. and sending people um, to their death, right? To be a hot lunch. Um, right. So I think really the mayor ends up being the main monster of the movie. And But at the end of Act 2, right before they get on the boat and commission the dude, the mayor has this moment where he's like, oh, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. My kid was on that beach. What can I do? You know, and the cop's like, you're going to sign this piece of paper so I can go hunting. But I don't, you know, I don't think we'll ever have that moment where our administration says, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so wrong. I've seen the error of my ways. You know, the Jaws mayor is such this bad guy. They make fun of him in, like, that Ghostbusters reboot. Don't be the Jaws mayor. And he's become, like, the <laughs> symbol of, like, you know, just putting your head in the sand and trying to maintain the status quo and how dangerous that can be. So he's become this big symbol of that. But, you know, Will are... Uh, but he, even him himself, realizes that the air of his ways or whatever in, in Act 2. And I, I just... I hope and dream that that would happen for us, but it seems like we're, we're never going to get uh, Act Two, Mayor of Jaws, uh, coming from the Trump administration, which is too bad. Uh, you nailed it. I, I I love it. Yeah, he really is kind of humbled, and he was like, "I was just trying to do my best." And but yeah, the moment where you put pride and ego and economy and and all that above above life and the health and well being and safety and lives of your populace, of your citizens, then that's where you get into trouble. And really, that's this movie just kind of swam up and bit me in the butt and was like, this is what it's saying, you know? I mean, like you said, it's got so many, it's so dense, it's so layered, so many stories going on, so many push and pulls with man versus nature and all that. But yeah, this man versus society element really smacked me in the face, uh, this this go through. Obviously, you know, we reached for this movie in the, with the backdrop of this thing going on. But mm-hmm. uh, it, what really jumped out to me this time was that he's from New York, and it's probably, like, again, New York, another parallel with now, another synchronicity, but now is just, you know, New York is the epicenter right now of, of, of the coronavirus. And sure, so right. seeing this kind of New Yorker come and go into this, like, it's very fish out of water, fish in water. Uh, <laughs> and he doesn't like, this, he doesn't like the water. Um, and you know what really, really hit me this time was the scene where they're ferrying over to check on the um, – what was it? The Boy Scout troop doing their mile swim or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's uh, it's Brody, it's the mayor, and uh, kind of the, some of the mayor's like goons and whatever you know posse, and they're on the water but they're not because they're on this ferry and there's literally a car. Mm-hmm. And then even later, uh, Brody's wife says, "Oh, he 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 likes to be on the water on, in a car, you know, parked a car." <laughs> so it's like you're not really on the water. You're still protected by your your vehicles and your land. Right, this your, land. Right. Mm-hmm. So the it's like, machine. this already is innately a problem. Now, granted, Brody Brody really rises up and is the hero of the piece. Um, and he represents kind of that blue collar, you know, He and he tries and he realizes that he needs help. And like you said, there's nothing nothing of great merit can be done alone. you, you got to respond to this crisis. Uh, there's so many, so many elements that have to come together. But that's what the federal government is. The federal government is, like you said, the director of a film set. You know, like sometimes you just have to make sure the ship is running. And the parallels with even talking about filmmaking and how it's a collaborative art and uh, nothing can be done alone. But now it's like 
a guy who hates water, but he's the chief of police. Okay, uh, a fisherman that doesn't like to work with others because he's stuck in his ways, and he's like, this is how we're going to do it, you know. And granted, he's great at it, and he has all the experience. Um, and he's the one who's seen sharks, the devastating of, of effects of sharks, with the Indianapolis speech, which is such a great speech. And apparently that speech oh, right. been that, rewritten like four times. Like everyone had a crack at it. And then um, that story, like within the story, so good. Right. Doll's eyes. Black. <laughs> black like a doll's eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's really riveting. <laughs> and it's really, you know, it goes back into the myth thing that I was talking about, too. Like, is there, uh, there's, there's this like, um, the real story and then like the story of the story and so for him mm-hmm. to be like around the fireside or you know they're in the boat drinking or whatever and telling the story it's like it is this haunted you know this sort of ghost story that he tells them uh, and this mythology of the fish as uh, you know he's he's there as all his people are getting eaten or whatever and then he ends up dying which goes for me goes back to this class struggle that I was hinting at before we had just we watched it but seeing it now like there's a huge class divide you know, the rich cop from New York, this this rich scientist with all the toys or whatever, uh, and then they can't do anything without this proletariat, working class, actual boatman, and then they go out to kill the shark, and uh, only one person dies. And, and it is that... The proletariat. The, the, the lower, you know, economical class proletariat guy... Uh, ends up dying, and then the other two uh, are free to tell the story of how hard it was for them or whatever. But it turns out that the guy who knew what he was doing and was so strapped for cash that he would take 10 Gs to, to risk his life to go and do it, um, he met his watery demise, and, and not not the city cop or the sort of trust fund scientist. That is extremely re- interesting, man, and well said, and that's that's awesome. I mean, yeah, like... They're saying that the ones who suffer are the, the working class and all this. Like, while the the, the upper classes are kind of shutting in and, uh, you know, the economy's buckling up um, and our presidents and our administration, our federal administration is saying, okay, well, we're doing the best we can. But in the meanwhile, while everyone's fiddling to come up with the call, um, it's the working class that really take the brunt of it. And, uh, and yeah, and I think that's brilliant that you nailed that uh that allegorical lens uh on that one because that's so true and yeah his death is it's obviously it's like all right you gotta you gotta have one more like you know gotta have one more attack one more bite one more uh one more <laughs> sacrifice to the this giant beast god myth mythical you know creature or whatever kraken um mm-hmm. so obviously you gotta have another and but his his death is so brutal Right, and it, we finally see it. Yeah, we finally see it. Um, it lands. It lands on the on the boat. It's like beating the boat up. Um, it's ramming the boat, and then it it lands on the deck of the boat and and like breaks it in half. <laughs> and he slides into its mouth, and he has to just kind of watch it happen. Like he's he's powerless. Um, and it's it's right. a harrowingly brutal moment. The blood when he spits up the blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, after it's pretty much eviscerating him and he spits up the blood. Oh my God. Apparently uh poor guy had to do that like so many times. I mean, you know, how many takes and he was like, it really, it, it's, it's pretty intense. Like you're really in this thing's mouth. This isn't a computer generated moment where you're like trying to act or react. They actually had this rig and those were like real teeth in there. And the thing really was like a hydraulic press, right? Oh so, shit. Yeah. So like guy, poor guy had to like get in there. <laughs> Um, 
but it communicates so well in the film. It, it it's such a brilliant, nasty moment. But yeah, I think you nailed it on the head that uh, he's the one that ends up um, bite, biting <laughs> right? the dust. Which in I'm the end. sure. I mean, we never see this moment, but I'm sure the mayor is like, "Great, so we don't have to pay him the ten grand now." Is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you know that he thought that. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. He's like, "Oh, we're good. We're off the hook." <laughs> and that line that's like you know if you say hey quote one line from jaws what would it be quote one line from jaws i'd say we're gonna need a bigger boat that's... we're gonna need a bigger boat he says it three times and it turns out they did they fucking did need a bigger boat <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why anyone didn't listen to him or why they didn't take the scientist boat that we see in act two or whatever yeah but okay fine and he's like we're gonna need a bigger boat right right he says it three times yeah and then the the shark destroys that boat and i was just thinking like yeah, yeah, you you do you did yeah. you needed a bigger boat, right? That's a problem. And the name of the boat is the Orca, which is a killer whale, right. for sure. Um, so I don't know what that means, but it sounded cool. And <laughs> I wanted to mention that. Um. <laughs> well, I think that that goes back to like this hidden monster thing. Like I'm I'm reading um, Moby Dick right now, and there's you know there's this chronologue of all these monsters of the deep, and the Great White is in there, and the Orca's in there, and course the sperm whale that moby dick is based on is in there and really these are just like he's an albino he's an albino seen. sperm whale yeah. right mm-hmm. right exactly no i'm so glad you brought up moby dick um actually i've never read it and i've been meaning to i'm actually looking at a copy of it right now on my bookshelf it's uh right it's next great. to the lord it's of the rings read. yeah i've seen the movie and actually i grew up um my father is a big moby dickhead and uh oh, cool. yeah we went and saw the in the heart of the sea a couple years ago um uh, when I was back in Delaware for the holidays from whence I came. And, uh, yeah, he's always been a big proponent of, of Moby Dick, and obviously the allegorical components are there. So I grew up watching the, the Gregory Peck uh, version, which is a terrific right. film. And, yeah, that quest uh, obviously becomes such an iconic thing, like the the quest to destroy this, you know, and, and the white whale represents God or nature or, or whatever avatar you want to assign it to give it whatever metaphor you want to assign to it, but yeah. it's that quest to kill it that ends up killing him. And that really mm-hmm. was the main kind of takeaway. But I love that. You, a couple of days ago, you sent me a photo from, from the book of like the shark, you know, like you were saying, <laughs> they, uh, they describe all these creatures. Yeah. I mean, I think whoever, you know, wrote the um, an, an initial book that Jaws was based on definitely had Herman Melville in mind and this struggle because there are there are so many parallels like the class thing we were talking about that's very much present as Ishmael is you know kind of privileged and everyone else on the boat are these like real salt of the earth worker men mm-hmm. um, and he's just sort of watching them and so we, we get that class struggle in in Moby Dick as well and um, there's just a, lo- a lot of the, a lot of the themes that we see um, in Moby Dick which is like you know man versus himself man versus nature all those are um, are in Jaws and um, it really feels like what what can we do to make Moby Dick this you know 100 year old book that's musty on the shelves like really exciting I feel like that's what they were trying to right. do like what if we do like a sexy Moby Dick um, <laughs> sexy dick <laughs> if you will that's uh, that's really interesting yeah yeah obviously so the whale um, and a whale is gigantic I mean uh, you know the shark in Jaws is 20, 26 feet or something like that, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this um, this giant whale, and I remember the the end is so harrowing where it, it wrecks the ship uh, again, like the orca gets destroyed in the end yeah, of Jaws. Totally. And, uh, 
yeah, and you're like, the only guy to survive is this this Ishmael, and he's just holding onto a board and kind of bookends the the piece. Call me Ishmael, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously, same ending as Jaws, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like that, and the disparity between the captain and um, and the rest of the crew, and uh, yeah, like, yeah, is Roy uh, not Roy Shutter? Um, Quint. Uh, Robert Shaw is he is he kind of the Ahab you know he's kind of the grizzled he's seen and maybe there is a bit of revenge wanting you know because he talks about in the Indianapolis where he watched uh, mm-hmm. fellow crewmen uh, get, get destroyed and you know is he kind of the Ahab character and then I he wonder, goes down at the end I wonder, you know I wonder I, I don't think there is an Ahab character in Jaws because Ahab right. uh, really just wants revenge and all the other people have their own motives like you know, the fisherman in Jaws wants money, going back to the class thing. Like, that's the only reason mm-hmm. he's there, to get yeah. his 10 Gs. And his color TV um, and all that. And it's, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the scientist sort of wants fame and glory or whatever to be the first one to bag and tag this big shark um, and get sort of the, the renown from academia uh, because he's discovered a shark where there shouldn't be one um, is his motivation. And then the cop is just trying to, like, save his... Um, really his children right and the children of everyone in the town or whatever so those are all their motivations so that's a little bit different than moby dick who they're out there to like um most of the guys are there to make money as it's a whaling ship and they're trying to like Mm -hmm. harvest the whale oil for lamps and cooking and all that stuff so i guess they do share that parallel with the boatmen in jaws but ahab himself he's really just hell hell bent on destroying this uh, monster that ate his leg um so i don't know if there is an ahab right i think there might been a Uh, slight kind of a slight nod where he's talking about the Indianapolis and maybe wanting revenge on this thing a little, but I agree. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not as cookie cutter as a clear parallel, uh, as that, but yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought up Moby Dick. Um, it's definitely all over this. I mean, anytime you're dealing with like any, any kind of like maritime expedition of any kind, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna pop up, you know? Right. To read the great quintessential, uh, American novel, adventure novel. Um, yeah, of course it would come up in these adventure, uh, these American adventure films. Um, but, I, you know, cinema is so much different than fiction. You know, even just watching Moby Dick, you can't really see it. Like, it's not really about them hunting the whale. It's all about him sort of waxing poetic and thinking about the right. nature of consciousness and stuff as he's looking at the waves and stuff. So to just see, a, you know, a whale in a movie doesn't really do that but jaws is operating on a different level and it really does it so well um really does um cinema so well um by playing with all these tropes and what you see and what you don't see and the unknown which you know is very much in moby dick's vernacular and the horrifying nature of the unknown and the depths and darkness and stuff mm-hmm. um, which does translate so well into cinema because you get to to see this stuff and like you know, when like in that scene in Jaws where they find the tooth, but he drops the tooth and that guy's head comes out. Oh, yeah. It's just like this like... That part's so scary. Vi- visceral moment. Yeah, it's so... That it's always so gets me. You're not expecting that. Yeah, it's like right? I know it it's coming now. Just now. We, you know, like I said, we've seen this movie a lot. And it's like, you know, it's... I mean, I don't know the exact moment, uh, but even like I feel like I know it's coming and it makes it worse. It's like... <laughs> it makes it's like I'm cringing, and then I feel like the movie lulls you. And like you said, with the chum moment, the movie like really knows when to kind of like relax you, and then boom, you know. Yeah, uh, once yeah, you punch. Yeah. 
All the, and I see that shot a lot in film. We were just rewatching all the Alien movies because those are also very topical. But there's a shot in Alien 3, which I think is Fincher. Oh, yeah. Which is exactly that shot where it's like framed up sort of weird, where it's like the main character is in the foreground on one of the corners, and you're like, why is this frame so big? I don't get it. And then this, the big monster appears in the rest of the frame, and you're like, oh, that's why. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I, they, I see it a lot. I could probably make a list for you or whatever, but... Um, there's a lot of shots that we end up seeing again and again that we first see in Jaws, or at least that I first see in Jaws. I feel like um, Spielberg is taking a lot of cues from Hitchcock as he's making this. Um, Absolutely. The suspense and even just the film color and uh, composition and graininess and all of that. I think he is really trying to make a Hitchcocky movie like Birds with Fish. <laughs> Birds, but fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I want to mention... Um... I'm glad you brought up Hitchcock because obviously he's the still is the towering suspense figure in in cinema, right? Especially right. American cinema. But um, yeah, I mean the kind of duality. Actually, it's funny. I didn't mean to reach for that word, but the movie Duel, uh, which it's funny. Um, he doesn't Spielberg doesn't consider it his first movie because I guess it was a TV movie, and um, but. I, I still think that that counts. Um, and it's funny, now we're talking about movies that can compete in the Oscars, and Spielberg was one of those guys that kind of showing his age of, like, we shouldn't uh, allow movies that don't play in a theater to compete. And now, now of course, there's no movie theaters anymore, so that's Yeah, that's that gone, was but... pre-event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, not to get too <laughs> off topic, uh, the movie uh, Duel, which is fantastic. And uh, have you seen Duel? I don't think so. I've oh, seen okay. a lot of the Hitchcock stuff, Rear Window and... Um, yeah, this is actually no, a Spielberg movie. Um, it was a TV movie. Oh, okay. So I think it was 22 or something when he made it. Oh, wait, with the truck? Yeah, with the truck. With the two trucks? I yeah. have seen that. Oh, okay, yeah. you've seen That's the also very scary. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was watching the making of, and he's like, when I think of Jaws, um, I was a lot dumber, younger, and I was a lot dumber. And, uh, and I remember I was like, oh, I did a movie called Duel that also had four letters, and Jaws has four letters. So, and they're both about this, like, Leviathan, like, you know, one's a truck, yeah. this unstoppable truck that you again, you mm-hmm. never you never see the driver. So there's that hidden Yeah, the unknown. The unknown. It's right. It's creepier that way. If you see the truck, then the then it's a guy, and then the truck truck driver is just a guy who's pissed off. But the truck itself becomes this unstoppable force. Right. Uh, if you don't see the driver, then the driver gets to be Satan or darkness or whatever. It gets to represent so much more than if you get to see it's just a dude like Right, yeah. totally. That's really well said. And he was like, okay, this is actually a kind of a spiritual successor to Duel. And at the very end of Jaws, when the shark blows up, uh, when Roy Scheider finally takes, Spoilers, care, guys. takes care of business. Oh, yeah, sorry. You've had, you've had 45 <laughs> years, so. And if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Jaws, then I don't know what you're doing, but it's fine. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> but spoiler alert, uh, blows the shark up at the end. It's that really epic moment with the, with the canister and, uh, you know, he shoots the canister and smile, you son of a bitch, and he blows him up. Great moment. There's the shot of the kind of sinking wreckage of Jaws. The shark's kind of rem- remains sinking into the water. You hear this slight groan noise. It's like, mm-hmm. that's actually the exact yeah. same noise at the end of Duel with the truck. Oh, and he was like, that was, okay. that, was my, that was my thank you, Duel, for getting me to this point. Um, and also there's definitely a kinship there. And the, the kind of like cat and mouse, the hunting element. Um, you know, in Duel, it's on the land, on the, on the road. And 
and gels us in the water. But I really just found that to be such a cool, hmm. cool, uh, cool thing, cool tie-in. Because he's like, yeah, right. Duel really, uh, I owe Duel for getting me to direct Jaws, which for the te- for a while was the biggest hit of all time. Yeah, and again, mm-hmm. invented the summer blockbuster. So, yeah, and Duel really holds up. If you guys haven't seen it, uh, I'm actually due for a revisit. I try to watch it every couple of years. It's it's really, really, really good. And apparently there's like a longer cut as well um, that hmm. I don't think I've seen. But uh, they had to cut it, I think, for uh, – actually, no, I think they had to make it longer for the uh, TV version. That's what it was. So I think the theatrical cuts <laughs> Just a little. B-roll of trucks and wheels and stuff. <laughs> Just got to stretch that out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, music by John Williams, uh, cinematography by Bill Butler, who they basically invented that camera that could bob, bob up and down above water, below water, above water. So you get those shots of merging those two worlds so brilliantly visually. Uh, the film editor Verna Fields is, she cut this in her house and it's great in the making of, they show her like cutting the movie in her basically our living room. And that was back when you actually had to like cut movies, you know, with the, sure, with scissors and cigarette holes and stuff. Yeah. 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 And she's she, speaking of cigarettes. She's like smoking. A, she, apparently she was like a chain smoker. She was like sitting there smoking cigarettes, just cutting this movie. And they were like, <laughs> she's the best. She's the sweetest woman. You, you know, already kind of a little older at the time. Um, Verna Fields. She was like the sweetest woman, but man, that woman could cut a movie, man. Uh, so it's really cool to see her in action in the, the making of, um, yeah, I mean, you just, uh, got David Brown and, and Zanuck, Richard Zanuck producing, and then obviously Spielberg, um, what a team, what a, what a movie. Roy Scheider is, her performance is stunning in this movie and, um, one for the ages. And, uh, he later went on to, a couple of years later, did a movie called Sorcerer, which is actually William Friedkin who did Exorcist and French Connection. So he... Was okay. already working. He was already working with Roy Scheider uh, in French Connection. This movie, uh, Sorcerer, is amazing, and uh, it's not gotten nearly the same level of clout as uh, Jaws. And it's actually freaking considers it his masterpiece. Um, Exorcist mm. and French Connection were the the big money ones, but um, it's also it takes place with truck drivers. So there's kind of a kinship there with Duel. Not to kind of reach too deeply there, reach for straws, but. Uh, there's this connection with these kind of like intense, gritty movies, harrowing movies about kind of blue collar people thrust into these situations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that I just really, really pick up so well. And Roy Scheider just crushes it, you know, um, got cast in Jaws because of French Connection. So that element's already there. But hmm. yeah, uh, wow, Jaws, man. Brilliant. I was such a Richard Dreyfus fan back in the day, and I still am. His character i identify with a little bit less this time because he's just sort of this rich rich asshole yuppie but he, yeah. he really brings like su- yeah yuppie uh he really brings this great energy to the movie like just having him laugh in the face of bureaucracy and stuff like yeah that's great it's great to, to see that and to have that energy or whatever um there's a lot of really good one-liners in jaws oh my gosh yeah the, like when they find when they catch the the shark I mean, this is another allegory, too. When they catch that tiger shark and say, hey, we've done it, you mm-hmm. know, this goes to, like, people don't really want a solution. They just want something that, like, looks good in the in the newspaper or whatever. Right. Um, 
I thought that was so good. But so <laughs> it's a tiger shark. And so someone's like, what kind of shark is that? And Richard Driver says, uh, it's a tiger shark. And then there's this one guy who says, it's a what? Oh, I yeah. Just love, I just love that line so much. I don't know why it sticks out to me. I think it really, he like, he got a line in this movie. And they were like, you just have to say it's a what? And he was like, okay, well, what can I do to like really own this line? And um, uh-huh. <laughs> it's so good. That's amazing. There's so many good one lines. Yeah, uh, when they so say horrible. like, "Hey, we're gonna close the beach. We're gonna close the beach," mm-hmm. and then the and then you know that's like during a press conference, and they're just sort of making it up on the fly. And then the mayor says, "Just for a day, just for twenty four hours." And then someone in the background, they may have done it in post, says, 24 hours is like three weeks." Oh my god, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was trying to remember <laughs> that that off camera line, and you you brought. I'm so glad you nailed it. <laughs> So yeah, good. 24 hours is like three weeks. It was like a woman, like kind of, yeah, know, woman like, in peril. No one has any patience. People can't change, you know, deal with change on any level. Um, yeah. And this is like society trying to come to terms with not being able to go to the beach, which is this leisure activity. It's like, it's so well done. And it works on so many levels because like all these things that are leisure or were leisure, you know, a month ago, like cruise ships and oh my God, going yeah. to the beach. Going to the movies. Like, this is stuff. Going to the movies. This is, you know, like, especially with cruise ships, this is something that you don't want to do. And humans have this tendency of taking something that is horrible. Like being on a boat, going from like Europe to the Americas is like a four month journey and it's miserable. And so, but now that we do it for like fun, to make like a leisure sport out of it is just so human and so like American. Um, yeah. And so to hear them hear them say like, "Oh, twenty four hours is three weeks." Like, you don't even really want to be on the beach, you guys. You want to like be indoor. <laughs> like, you really want to like have society. You don't want to be out out there where the monsters are anyway. But but we do because that's leisure. We want to be almost um, dead, and that that's what makes it fun. <laughs> We want to flirt with it, but then have our comfortable <laughs> room with our, you know, TV with a bunch of movie channels and uh, a buffet, a never-ending buffet. I went, I went on one cruise a few years ago, and it really was great. And it was, I did not lose Ugh. any weight on that trip, though, Ugh. Nick. Terrible. I know. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's such a gluttonous display of, uh, yeah, like you nailed it, you know, so American, <laughs> so like just taking what would normally be something that you would suffer, like coming across, you know, how many people died coming across the, the yeah. Atlantic in uh, a couple hundred years ago, but or even earlier in the this last century, like all of our mm-hmm. grand, my, my, all my great-grandparents came from Italy, and they were like, yeah, most people just died, and it was yeah, yeah. just how it is. But now we do it for fun, and it's sort of neat. Yeah. Leisure. Hashtag leisure. Well, now that we're facing this uh, pandemic, um, this invisible monster of COVID-19, uh, I just got... I just saw yesterday there was an article that's uh, here in L.A. The mayor suspended all sporting events and concerts oh, wow. until 2021. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And then it's like, well, then and then your follow-up question's like, what about movie theaters? What about, what, like, yeah. are we just what not going to ma- have, like, events, well, What about making movies? Gatherings? Like, I, you know, I, I pay my bills by making um, bad TV, and if, you know... If, if we're not going to be making bad TV, then <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be yeah. What am I doing here? here. Casa Chandler. Yeah. No, I know our our, our production is going to be because uh, that that begs the question: Our production is going to be um, also part of that. I mean, are we looking at? I mean, twenty twenty one is like eight months away, more than eight months away. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. 
We will see for sure. Um, I'm on. I'm on two very high. Um, I mean, I hate to just pat my own back, but I'm only saying this because I can't say the names of the shows. But I'm on two very big shows that you you will have heard of as a listener, um, and one of them is shut down indefinitely, and then the other one says they're going to come online in July, and you know we'll see. I hope they do. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too, man. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a strange moment. Okay, I'm go- also going through my line. I'm, I, there's so many great one-liners. There's another one where the wife, <laughs> he's he's worried about the shark attacks, and she just says, want to get drunk and fool around? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who wrote this woman? Uh, not a woman. Uh, how about this one? I can, I can do anything. I'm the chief of police when they're getting drunk at the oh, table. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. And he's, and like, he's, clearly, he's clearly tipsy already. Shark. He's like shit-faced. He's like, I can do anything. Yeah. I'm the chief of police. The chief of police. <laughs> oh man yeah i love that line so much yeah that's a great scene uh at the table yeah let's go and cut the thing open man now that we're nice and drunk <laughs> so many so many good lines i mean and uh robert shaw's uh how does that song go the uh the shanty song he's singing <laughs> farewell and do you old spanish lady farewell and do you ladies of spain it's so good it's so catchy <laughs> Oh, man, what a what a what a perfectly what a perfectly put together movie, and it's right at the two hour mark. I feel like movies now, like epic movies now, they have to go to like two and a half. You know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily mm. a good or bad thing, but yeah. there's just it's it's perfect. I, I think it doesn't it doesn't linger. It you know it gets in and gets out. As soon as the shark's gone, they they pedal they pedal home, and there's a shot of them like heading back towards the shore. Yeah, and that's it. There's actually. Boom. There's no denouement. There's no falling action. Like, so, oh, good job. I'm really glad you, uh, I don't know, you know, but the beach is yeah. you, know, like, you don't Typically, need any of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have the the big, exciting conclusion or whatever, the, the climax, and then typically there's a couple scenes where you just, like, relax and unwind and sort of pat yourself on the back and see what the world is like now when you return with elixir. And right. So they don't do any of that in Jaws. They're just like... Yeah paddling home I hope, I hope they're gonna have a nice memorial for quint um <laughs> a nice slideshow uh of his life at least but yeah right no i love it i you don't need it you, you know it's it's over you don't need it um in this case you're right yeah and it's funny you mentioned the mayor kind of having his um he's coming he's coming to life or coming uh coming around moment of admitting humble moment that's it yeah as soon as as soon as they go to sea that's it they're on the sea the rest of the movie Mm-hmm. But man, 140 day production schedule. What a what a thing. That's that's crazy. And uh, it's got to be one of the longest. I know that uh, Apocalypse Now was the whole year. It was like 370 days shooting. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, might I be think the this longest. still might have it. Actually, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick's final film. Um, I mean, he was known for long. He would be like, oh, we're going to shoot for a year. Like, there was no bones about it. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to have to go longer. Like, it was like. I think Eyes Wide Shut, they went 100 and – I think they broke 200, uh-huh. I think. Uh, uh-huh. I'd, have to, I'd have to look it up. But, um, but yeah, to talk about, you know, cutting your teeth as a director and, like you said, you know, knowing how, how, how much of a, a mountain is in front of you, uh, an iceberg in this case. But, like, Spielberg says he still has nightmares that it's, like, day one of Jaws again. And he's like <laughs> – and, he, and he's like, if I had known how hard it was going to be – I would have never done it, you know. 
But they, they even said like, oh, it's like this is a movie. You get the script. And you're like, this is a movie that I want to see. This is not a movie that I want to work on. <laughs> it's going to be a real. For sure. Richard Dreyfuss is like, this is going to be a real bitch to shoot this movie. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, and it was. That's great. And I end up working on a lot of movies that are sort of the opposite of that. <clears throat> They're really fun to make and really terrible to watch. So it, it would be good to, you know, make, <laughs> make one, just one that would be great to watch, but hard to make. Right. Now, well, Spielberg's like, I wouldn't trade it. You know, I got this. Um, it was hard, you know, and it was really, really hard. And it was definitely a line in the sand moment um, that it was like that it really made me, you know, who I am. And it gave me that that exercise in experiencing this. Um, but he's like, man, I do have these. I still have these like PTSD nightmares where I'm like day one again of Jaws. And it's like, what do we do? How do we do this oh, no. shot? Well, he's like, you set up your shot and you're on the water and you set up your shot. And then by the time that you're ready to roll, the boats have moved. The the sure. you know, the tide has changed or whatever the current yeah, has shifted. Yeah, moved. Yeah. Right, and he's like, man, you know, if I got five good shots a day, that was, you know, I just had to get my five shots and uh, just keep moving wow. and keep moving and keep moving. And you you see the movie and it doesn't feel it. It doesn't feel that. Obviously, when you make a movie, you know, it has that continuity element of like, you know, whether it all takes place at once. But this is a movie that mostly takes place over a couple of days. Right. And it doesn't feel it, man. Like. You don't you don't see like the differences in beards or anything, you know. You're not you're not mm-hmm. feeling that hodgepodge element. And I think you're shooting this movie over so long, and you're only getting five shots a day, especially once they're on the water. Um, those, those shots were that was a real beast. Right, and there's a shoot. There's a lot of happy accidents, but there's two shooting stars in this movie. Oh yeah, I don't know if you. Yeah, there's right. two of them. So glad you brought that up. And they're just like in shots right next to each other. They and, just got it. Um, that's so neat. I think that's so cool. It's like the opposite. There's a there's an airplane in um, uh, what is that Mel Gibson movie? Scotland and um, they'll never take our freedom. So there's oh, an uh, airplane. <laughs> there's an airplane in Braveheart that they never airbrushed out. Oh, is that right? But, I didn't know what that was. Yeah, one. but there's two shooting stars in Jaws, which I just think is so neat. Like, yeah, you know that these people were here and. Um, you know that the the physical world still exists around them as they're making it, even though right. it's a robot shark and everyone's an actor. And you know, there's the, there's this moment where there's these two shooting stars, and he just left it in. Obviously, you could it's just, just raw, cut that out. raw nature, raw raw things what happening. Is that yeah, that's really cool, man. That's I'm really cool. glad you brought that up. Some happy accidents. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, there were so many happy accidents, and uh, apparently, they wanted somebody else besides uh, Roy Scheider, and um, mm. I can't imagine anybody else in any of these roles. Um, I mean, I get that. He does feel like he's in a little bit in a different movie, which is kind of great. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is playing everything so serious, but then he's just like always eating a peanut butter sandwich and telling them how they're all <laughs> going to die or whatever. Like, it's so great to have him be such a foil to their like tight, you know, um, uh, their buttoned up personas. And then he's just like, I'll kill it for you, but it's not going to be cheap. He's really from a different movie and from a different time. Yeah, Shaw. Yeah, totally. He's a yeah. The fisherman, uh, the boatman, is a is a man sort of trapped in a different time, right. which really works for him. Sometimes you see that in a movie, and it's like, oh, this guy's just in a different movie. He's not a good actor. But that's not what's happening. <laughs> he that's the, not he what's happening here at all. This sounds. guy is so brilliant. He's like raising the stakes and really like totally taking it from the city movie. Time of your sheepshank. And he like kind of he's like trying to show off his his fishermanness to like the yuppie Hooper. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of yeah. become that odd couple like and, and mm-hmm. I love that one shot where Hooper literally like 
makes a face at him when he turns away and he's like, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he's like, well, I learned that you college boys aren't don't know enough to admit when you're wrong. Um, yeah. Which is another oh, yeah, when he looks at his wrong. hands, too, uh, to, to go back to that, like, he looks, he's like, you can mm-hmm. tell a lot by a man's hands, and he's like, your hands are, your hands are weak, bro. <laughs> yeah, you go know? back to the lab. Yeah, right, right. Oh, man, I mean, totally, you get, like, you get the lab guy, you get the old fisherman, you get the, just the, like you said, these kind of things coming together, the convergence of these elements uh, mm-hmm. in the allegory. And uh, obviously just a riveting, great spectacle movie that is incredible. I can't, it's 45 now. I mean, wow. It's all, right. you know, in yeah. five more years, it'll be 50 years old. Um, and it, yeah, nowadays you would just have more CG, and but it's perfect. It's a perfect movie. It, it doesn't age. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's great. It's really well done. And seeing it now as an adult, you know, it's really underlined, like, I mean, I've talked about the class stuff, but there's also this, like, entitlement thing that's happening. Like, everyone on the on the island is like, oh, you're, if you weren't born on the island, you were not on the island. And everyone's so entitled. And right, you're not an islander. Like, you gotta, yeah. Yeah, you got to move the car from out in front of my shop. Everyone's, like, super entitled. And then all of that goes away when there's a giant monster, right? Like entitlement is just such this leisure, you know, such mm-hmm. this thing that you can only do if everything else is in place. But if once you're being attacked by giant monsters, like you don't have no the luxury anymore. Entitlement. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's great. <laughs> no, I mean, and we're we're seeing it play out daily. Um, I don't want to get too um, political or whatever, but you know, we're we're seeing it uh, every day right now, and there's definitely a class struggle still showing itself, you know, because the, 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 the inner cities are getting hit harder. The people with less access to resources are getting get harder by this, the, you know, this virus. And, you know, like a shark, it doesn't care, like, your political status. It's, so it showcases all those disparities. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just really, really been um, – it's been really tough. And I, I hope that, like in Jaws, despite the yuppie, despite whatever entitlement, despite all those elements that you brought up, like, they, like you said, they build the team and they get it done, you know? So it's like, are we mm-hmm. going to be able to get it done? Uh, is this going to, is this going to devastate us more than it already has? Um, there's these, these trying moments are, there's an opportunity for the governments to really step up and be the hero. And, um, you know, just, we all have to quarantine. I'm worried that if we reopen the economy, it's just going to, we're just going to get our asses handed to us again. And then we're going to have to go back into quarantine. You know, we're going to have to go back into a shutdown, and that's going to be a longer process. Whereas if we just bit the bullet, like like Quint eloquently says, "Annie up, or you're going to be on welfare by the winter." You know, like we got to all work together here. This this isn't this isn't going to work if like some states don't do it and others do. And you know, we're seeing that kind of dis, we're seeing that kind of broken of the country where it's like right now the United States of America we've got to like show the united part we really got to this is an opportunity an opportunity for us to really unite uh, and if we don't it's just going to it's just going to get worse and worse and we're already looking at over 600,000 cases in the US uh, we just hit looks like 30,000 deaths um, uh, and in January we didn't have a single case so you know We've got to do our part here. We've got to come together. Right. I think that this, you know, our governor keeps calling it a moment. This moment Mm -hmm. is really educational, you know, in the sense of like sort of accidental education. Like we're learning a lot about um, class consciousness and about 
how our country is set up. You know, Andy and I live in California, and you know, our governors have made a, an alliance of the states so that they won't open up like the western states, even if the Fed decides to. So now we're seeing like yeah. a rise in state rights. Right, I think a lot of stuff that's happening, and um, yeah, I think most yeah, people I mean, most people think that man, the, you know, this is silly that the federal government is is kind of coming off, and it's 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 been a real tragedy and comedy, tragic comedy, I guess, watching for um, sure, watching these press it's, briefings. Yeah, and seeing seeing the governors take more power is on one hand great because it's like okay, great, well, Cuomo and. And um, the guys here in California, they, they seem to have a brain, and, and that's great. But then when you see the disconnect with the Fed, um, it's really disheartening. And to see states grabbing more power than they normally do, I mean, this is what leads up to, you know, civil wars and stuff. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. I think that we are all, like, learning more about who we are as a country and who we are as individuals and um, if we can exhibit some grace under pressure here and really come together, then, um, then we'll be, um, better for it. But as these, um, powers that be start just getting more nefarious, um, I think it's good that people are waking up to this. Yeah. And and like you said, so much ego and so much, yeah. Like you gotta surrender that. I mean, even the, like the mayor in Jaws, like he was like, you know, he really, like he really was just trying to look out, look after this beach community that relies on this summer dollars, you know? Mm-hmm. so but being able to like know when to oh man i really gotta like look in the actual like, there's no economy if everyone's dead you know like <laughs> there's there's nothing you know so right i think this jaws to kind of tie it back into jaws as a button here um just see it as a cautionary tale and it has a happy yeah. ending you know it has a happy ending i mean you know robert child passes away which is really sad but they beat it you know and uh are we going to be able to unite and, and make a plan that that ends up beating it? Um, we'll see. So I think we got to just I, look look to the stories that inspire us and, and educate us. And history repeats itself, right? And uh, I think it's it's crucial that we learn from the past. Whether it's a movie that obviously this you know Jaws is a, it's not a documentary, but there's so much good in here. Um, Look, look to the past and, and not be blind and, and be educated and work together. Right. Absolutely. And cinema has a great way of doing that, of being this mythology that can shed light on reality. You know, pe- people endure their realities and live through their myths. So this is a great example of like how we can take this myth, this fiction of Jaws and um, use it as a lens to look at what's happening now and that's some of the beauty of cinema is that it's able to do that, to give you these powers of observation. Um, oh, my cat is agreeing. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably lunchtime. But cinema is great at, at giving um, uh, the populace the ability to see stuff that they couldn't before. So it's great that, you know, the Jaws mayor is a, thi- is a thing. People know what you're talking about. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't be the Jaws mayor, you know? Right, like, right. <laughs> so you got to think about this. So Yeah. Um, Love it. Yeah, cinema is really good at that. That's really, really powerful stuff, man. All right, well, um, I'm happy to, to land there, and uh, this has been ridiculously great and amazing to have you, Mr. Nick Chandler. Do you want to oh, Do you want to give any uh, credentials out right now, like uh, website or anything? Or 
Uh, I don't have a website. I mean, you know, we'll be releasing Last Best Hope, which we talked about at the top half of the show um, later this year. So keep a lookout for that. For sure. Um, maybe if you let me come back on and plug it as we're releasing, that would be great. I will um, absolutely love for you uh, to do that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, in this time of isolation, it's it's good to sort of cycle, circle back and, and look at that stuff that really does inspire us. And so doing doing this podcast has been great because... There's so many great films out there and, um, you know, being able to sort of cocoon yourself in them during uh, <laughs> during self-isolation is great because I think we'll, we'll be stronger for it as we come out. Um, you know, I've always been a storyteller, so uh, it's great sort of immersing myself in these stories. So thanks for helping me sort of deconstruct some of it today. Oh, absolutely. And likewise, yeah, this has been amazing and tremendous. Uh, thank you so much for your time spending better part of the afternoon here with me and morning uh, really really appreciate it man nick chandler everyone uh i i can do anything i want i'm the chief of police there it is all right well thank you so much sir and uh look forward to talking to you more about everything <laughs> awesome thanks andy take care brother